We'll turn to, again, Ruth chapter 4. We are not in Proverbs 31, though it will apply. We're continuing where we picked up, or left off, excuse me, two weeks ago, the week before Easter. Since it's been a couple weeks, um, let me review with you a little bit where we're at. We know that Boaz had just committed to marry Ruth. She was the young widow that uh, came from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow. And Boaz was this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer who had the right to marry her. The Levitical law would demand that a man marry his brother's widow in order to perpetuate the name of that deceased brother. Now, if no immediate brother existed, which is the situation here, uh, it would then permit a close relative to fill that same void, to perpetuate the name of the deceased in the land. In this situation, for Ruth, there is one closer relative, if you remember, than Boaz. Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but there's one closer relative that needs to be talked to. And remember, this also involves a transaction of a piece of land. Land, family land, is a big deal in Israel. You probably know that. It is here as well. In fact, for many people, the accusation or the uh, acquisition, excuse me, of this field would be the actual prize in this passage. Most everyone considers land an asset. A Moabite widow, most, many, say, not so much. That's a liability. But believers and unbelievers as well like property. Even today, you know, real estate is one of the largest industries in America and around the world. Since land is involved here, Boaz wants to make sure that this entire transaction is all done out in the open. That's a wise decision. They didn't have attorneys or notaries back at this time, as we do today. Instead, they had wise, experienced men that were called elders that would sit in the city gate to assemble in the center of business. The city gate was the entrance and exit to the city. People would enter to come in to sleep, to do business. They would go out to go to their fields to work. Sooner or later, everyone had to enter or leave the city gate. So Boaz wants to make sure there's wise counsel available, along with witnesses, because he knows that this transaction is going uh, to be an immensely valuable one. This is going to have a lot of value. But you know, for uh, for Boaz, the land is not the critical asset in this passage. Instead, his desire is to accomplish two goals. Honor God and acquire Ruth. Back in chapter 3, we learned about this desire he had to have Ruth as a wife. When she originally suggested the idea, he said this, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all the people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Ruth is a woman of excellence. You likely recall when we studied that passage three weeks ago, I had said that the terminology in that passage, a woman of excellence, 
is identical to the introduction of Proverbs 31. That's a description of the virtuous woman. Now let me assure you, as a man, you simply cannot acquire a more valuable asset than an excellent wife. Many of us here, perhaps most of us who have Christian wives, uh, have potential Proverbs 31 women. You know, if we look at our wife and we say, well, you know, I'm not quite sure that is the case. I don't know how she measures up. Man, I will tell you, if there's a failure there, it is more likely your failure than it is hers. That's a different sermon for a different day. Different text. But since creation, the wife has been programmed to respond to a man who displays godly, biblical male leadership. She'll appreciate that, and she will respond to that, and she will flourish from that. That's the reason that God reveals in his word uh, back in Genesis that when the woman Eve took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, it really wasn't her failure. Adam was there. It was his failure. He was the one who didn't protect her, didn't lead her, and that's why it says that our sin is passed down to us through Adam. He was the one responsible to lead in a biblical and godly way. As husbands, we must not fail to do that if we want our wives to flourish. The virtuous wife is the most valuable asset any man can have. And Boaz knows that. Through her, his whole whole household has the opportunity to flourish. God's word still assures us of that today. Uh, The narrative of this book has shown us that that Ruth is strong, she is ambitious, she's hardworking, she's resourceful, she is honest, she's caring, and she is loyal. Just like the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, as far as Boaz is concerned, forget the land. What about this woman? The land, there's land everywhere. Where can you find a virtuous woman? We know from Proverbs 31, as well as many other passages in the Bible, that the value of an excellent wife is far above gold or jewels. Far above. So Boaz here, he's all in. He is committed. He wants to land that trophy catch. That's what his goal is here, and to do it in a godly way. Fortunately for him, in this situation... The other relative isn't quite as smart. He's more like the Jethro Bodine type, if you know what I mean. What he's concerned about is land. We can expect that Boaz knows this relative pretty well. Um, Bethlehem's a small town. Boaz has observed this man over many years. He knows that the man is materialistic. He knows that he's concerned primarily about preserving his own estate and growing his own estate. And most important, he knows that this relative reacts impulsively. Been around him for years. So Boaz goes to the city gate. He has a plan. And since he's the one with the agenda, Boaz is the one who sets the scene here. In verse chapter one, uh, verse one of chapter four, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And the man turned aside and sat down. 
So now, during this busy time of year, people are still threshing grain. They are working hard. They're going in and out to their land. Uh, This is a busy time. He knows eventually this relative has to pass through the city gate. Um, All he has to do is sit down and wait for the opportunity. So when the relative passes by, Boaz redirects the man and invites him to sit down. Uh, The term friend here, which he calls him by, is an idiom. It's an expression used by the author to make a point. More literally, the author identifies this relative as Mr. So-and-so. An Israelite that would be reading this scripture would be able to pick that up. They would recognize it in the text that the identity of this relative isn't very important at all. Though Boaz certainly knows this relative's name, uh, it is the author's creative way to diminish the importance of this man. His name really is not worth mentioning. And we'll soon learn why. In verse verse 2, Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. This would have been the appropriate way to do contractual business in this culture. Mr. So-and-so knows that. He's aware that there's something to go, that's ready to go down. And then Boaz proceeds to lay out the state of affairs in verse 3. It says, Then Boaz said to the closest relative, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, if you haven't been with us, Recently, Elimelech is the deceased husband of Naomi. We don't know why she needs to sell the land. Possibly it's her poverty. It really doesn't matter. Uh, Some theologians make a big whoop-de-doo concerning the question of Naomi's ownership in this situation. Elimelech Elimelech passed away, and the land, according to some, should have passed to Malon and Kilian. As they were down in the land of Moab, it should belong to them and possibly transfer to their uh, widowed wives. Um, There's no clear understanding, uh, according to them in this culture, how the land could have passed back up to the mother Naomi. I won't get concerned with that detail. This is Israel, and the land is promised to the Jews. Uh, We do acknowledge, we know that Ruth has professed faith in the God of Israel, Uh, But categorically, her and the other widow, Orpah, are still categorically Moabites. They're foreigners. Moabites don't receive a physical inheritance in the land. So Elimelech's widow, Naomi, she's the only surviving family member of Elimelech. That's a Jew. This is her land. And in verse 4, Boaz then says to the relative, So I thought to inform you, saying... Buy it before all those sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And the relative said, I will redeem it. Mr. So-and-so definitely wants the land. His response is written in the emphatic text. Uh, More um, the tense... uh, more literally would say, in Hebrew, I, I will redeem it. He wants to make sure that everyone present in the city gate, the elders there in Boaz, clearly understand that he fully intends to buy this land. 
Now, have you ever leaped at an offer before, before you know all the conditions that are attached to it, to the arrangement? Then when you start to hear more, you kind of get that awkward feeling that you want to back out. That's how that re- this relative is going to feel here in a moment. Boaz continues then in verse 5. It says, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased. And then Boaz supplies the primary reason, as the law would be concerned. It's in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance on the deceased's inheritance there's a couple interesting things here to note though Boaz sets up the scene here the occasion I don't think he really set up the relative to look silly we've observed throughout the book uh, in regarding to his character uh, Boaz is is impeccable he is a godly man I don't think he just hung that statement out there in order for this relative to latch on to it and, and then answer rashly. Since the relative's response is in the emphatic tense, I actually think that it is the relative who cut Boaz off. When Boaz said, there is no one but you to redeem it and I am next after you, Mr. So-and-so cut in and said, I will redeem it without permitting Boaz to finish the conditions of the sale. But Boaz does finish then. Though the law did not demand anyone other than an immediate brother to marry Ruth the widow, the spirit of the law, which is grace, the spirit of the law does warrant that the deceased Elimelech's name be perpetuated and preserved in Israel. It does warrant that his name not be cut off. And being a man of grace, Boaz insists that marrying the widow Ruth and raising up descendants of Elimelech is going to be a prerequisite to this land sale. So he's putting the old squeeze on Mr. So-and-so. This is going to be a package deal. You don't get the land alone. How did he get the authority to do this? I'm suspicious, though the text doesn't tell us between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, I wouldn't doubt one bit that Naomi went there early in the morning and uh, had a discussion with how the land transaction would go down with Boaz. So he was representing her in a sense. She had given him the authority to do this. And what is the response to this package deal from the close relative? It says, The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. His heart's exposed. He's not really concerned at all about this widow Ruth. He's really not all that concerned about pre- uh, preserving this lineage, this, this name of his brother Elimelech. not concerned about that. He's not concerned about the spirit of the law. He's just concerned about the law. What he is concerned about is acquiring more land. And more important to him, preserving his own estate. He gives no value or consideration to redeeming Ruth, even though she's known in the city as a woman of excellence. This man says that I'm out. 
I don't want any part of that package deal. You know, a number of commentators uh, want to emphasize the fact that Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, there's probably some truth to that, that she's a foreigner. But the primary reason this impulsive man provides himself uh, for this decision is that redeeming Ruth would endanger his inheritance. Better understood here as his own current estate. It's the inheritance that he would receive and then pass on. It is what he has right now. Now, most of you who have been here for several weeks, who have been studying Ruth together, you realize that the supreme theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. This narrative is an illustration through the lives of Boaz, who is the relative redeemer, and that life of Ruth, who is the widowed Moabite, the destitute widow. This is a narrative of how God provides a righteous and godly Jew from the tribe of Judah and originating from the uh, town of Bethlehem to redeem a Gentile. That's what he wants to do, is redeem a Gentile out of poverty. He wants to do it not because the law demands him to do so, it does it because of grace. Boaz is a man of grace. This is all written well over a thousand years before Jesus Christ is born. And here in this text, then, we observe the hero. That is Boaz. On purpose by the author compared to the zero. That's Mr. So-and-so. He refuses to redeem the impoverished Gentile because it might jeopardize his financial portfolio. How often do you and I fail to extend grace, to go share with others the unredeemed, because it might impact us in some way, might cost us something, might cost us a little bit of time, might cost us an inconvenience to our schedules, it might divert us from our incredibly important agenda for the day. In all likelihood, this relative probably already has plenty of money, plenty of land, probably one or more sons who would inherit this estate he's concerned about. But let's take a moment to look at might possibly be jeopardized if he were to decide to give grace to both the widows, Naomi and Ruth. Imagine now he would need to take a sum of cash that he has from his estate, leverage possibly assets in order to buy this field, this piece of land of Naomi's. This would be part of the inheritance that his sons would be expecting. He gives the cash to Naomi. Then if he marries Ruth and he provides a descendant in the name of Elimelech, who then would get Naomi's land if Mr. So-and-so were to suddenly die? Would it be the current sons, the current estate of the relative? No. The land would go to Elimelech's child, to Elimelech's son. The land that he paid for with money out of his own estate would be transferred to Elimelech's descendant, not his own sons. So do you follow me here? He'd be taking money out of his reserves that's intended to be the inheritance for his children and he would have to put it over in a Limelech's pile over there in order to go to Ruth's child. 
redeeming Ruth and extending grace would jeopardize to whom he might leave part of his inheritance, at least a portion of it. In effect, it might result in him just giving the money away. By grace, just giving without expecting anything in return. You know what he says? He says, the law does not demand that I do this. He's not an immediate brother. I don't have to do this. And I'm not going to extend grace to the relative Elimelech or to this Moabite widow. In this book, he is the polar opposite of Boaz. Well, in verse 7, the decisions are made and the transaction now becomes final. It says, Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of the land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation or testimony in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Now during this time of of a few written records, uh, witnesses and symbolism are really important here. Uh, The handing of a sandal to another, uh, that was probably uh, signifying uh, giving the uh, authority for that person to walk the land. It is now yours. You won't be trespassing any further. I'm giving that to you. And I understand that this may seem kind of odd as a symbolism there, but so are wedding rings. You ever looked at the origin of wedding rings? Where that came from? Nobody really knows for sure, but yet we do it. Does the symbolism work? Yeah, it works. We go by it. It's a cultural symbol. It's the same here of handing the sandal. And like any transaction, during this period of few written records again, uh, a large number of witnesses were important to make a transaction secure. So he has ten witnesses there and a whole bunch of other people in the city. Boaz has now bought the land. It's his. But the land wasn't the prize that he had desired. That isn't what he wanted, primarily. In fact, The land isn't even a focus in this book at all. It doesn't even get mentioned until chapter 4. We're almost finished with the book. We're almost done. Boaz's desire was to redeem a virtuous woman, a precious woman for a wife. Because he realizes Ruth, that individual, is where the real treasure is. So he continues then in verse 10. Moreover, Boaz tells the elders, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So the name of the deceased will not be cut off in his brothers, from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. Again, look, he says, I'm going to raise up his inheritance, Elimelech's not afraid to offer with generosity. In the greater scheme of things here, in this passage, in this text, in life, uh, the land and the value of it, it don't mean anything. 
The price isn't even mentioned here. The price isn't even mentioned. Considering God's word, all that this property is good for, in this context, the only lasting value that it has is it is a resource through which, by which, to redeem a human being. The asset is a resource in order to redeem an individual. I think the meaning is pretty clear. This is one of the things that I love about this book of Ruth. It doesn't only magnify redemption, the breadth of it, the depth of it. It amplifies the the value of the human being that is being redeemed. She is more important than a piece of land. She might be nothing more than a poor um, Moabite widow to Mr. So-and-so, but to the Jewish redeemer born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, she is precious and invaluable. Invaluable. You can't put a price on her. The Gentile woman is more precious to her redeemer than gold or jewels or anything else you might be able to acquire. And every person that we encounter, whether they're poor, whether they're a destitute widow, whether they're an addict, whether they're a homeless person, they are more important than any asset that we have or any asset that we might ever acquire. We don't know uh, this to be an absolute... uh, We do know, however, this is an absolute fact. Because for your redemption, how much was paid? To redeem a person who is lost, to redeem a Gentile, to redeem someone out of spiritual poverty, the cost was infinite. Because it, 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 it required the life of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Much more valuable than anything else. So how could anyone conclude that money or land or resources are more important than the souls of men? That's why Jesus' tragic story of the rich man, you say, which rich man? Talked about it a lot. The one that had the land that was so productive that he decided he was going to build bigger barns. He already had a lot. Now he just was going to get more in order to hold all the excess. This, this story is riveting to us. The narrative in Ruth demands that we ask ourselves, am I more interested, more involved, more invested in the acquisition of more land and in the size of my barns than I am concerned with Christ's desire to go to the highways and to the byways to find those precious ones that are not yet redeemed. Jesus said to that rich man in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, But God said to the man, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, Jesus says, who stores up treasure for himself, like Mr. So-and-so, and yet is not rich towards God. It really doesn't matter how much you acquire. What matters is the souls of man. What matters is worship of the king. What matters is the harvest of souls. The harvest of the unredeemed. And the fields are white for harvest, according to Jesus Christ. 
That is what we're invested in. That is the inheritance that we're looking for. People to come to know Jesus Christ. You know, I was going to uh, originally take this and start talking about the marriage a little bit. I'm glad I didn't. We went had some several announcements today. Um, I think we're just going to end it right here today, and we're going to talk about the marriage, the significance of this marriage next week. Um, that'll be more appropriate to the passage next week as well. I think the message is clear. Let's pray. Dear Lord in heaven, uh, I, I just am, am amazed. I am encouraged, Lord, uh, at your word. How penetrating your holy word is, Lord God, to have books that span a millennia, more than a millennia, Lord, close to a couple millennia, that have one focus, and that is redemption of the lost. Lord, to look into uh, this book of Ruth over the last several weeks and to look at the marvelous act of redemption that you've done uh, through the lives of people who lived thousands of years ago. Lord God, it is you are truly mighty. Your word is truly powerful. Lord, we're truly moved. and We love you. Lord, I pray um, as we finish now this, this book of Ruth and look towards moving forward and serving you, Lord, and, and looking at this adoptive ministry fair, Lord, looking at Mother's Day and appreciating all the virtuous, wonderful women that you put into our lives, our wives, our mothers, our sisters, our grandmas, Lord, the daughters that are still growing. Lord, I pray that for the men here that you make us men who will um, help them to be all that you've created them to be, Lord. We know each one of them you want, Lord, to be that uh, excellent woman. Lord, if we stand in the way anywhere, help me, help us, Lord, as men, to, to lead in a way that leads our wives into flourishing. Lord, as we continue to share your gospel this afternoon, this, this evening, with those who uh, are out on the street and the highways and the byways, Lord, I pray that you're opening hearts going ahead of us now. And, uh, Lord, uh, encourage us go up against our flesh that generally doesn't like to do these types of things, Lord. We'd rather worry about our estate. Lord, I pray that you'll open doors of the hearts of those we're going to talk to. I pray that you encourage us, that you strengthen us, you help us to uh, just love witnessing to you, Lord God. Please bless everyone here. Bless every family, Lord. If there's anyone here who hasn't quite understood your redemption, that Christ had to die for us because we're sin. We needed to be bought back, Lord, redeemed, purchased by Christ's blood. Lord, I pray that you would make it clearly evident in their heart now that you would seal them with your Holy Spirit, bring them into the family of God, Lord. Help us to introduce others to you and to build that wonderful family you've given us, Lord. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.